Hello, Hill City. My name is Corey Goss, and I'm part of the team here. We are so glad that you were online with us this morning. We want you to know that Hill City is a safe place for you to get to know Jesus. So if you are curious and have any doubts, questions, or fears, we would be honored to talk with you through those things. If you have been watching with us, we want to check in with you and see how you are doing. You can fill out a connection card on our website and help get you connected with other people. All right? Today, we got a few songs and then our next message in our sermon series. Thanks for being here.
Good to see all of you guys. Um, if this is your first time here uh, with us at Hill City, um, my name is John Wagler. I'm part of this uh, team here and just so grateful you decided to spend a portion of your Sunday um, with us. And we'd love to get to, to know you a little bit better. And so on your way out, um, if you've got questions or want to figure out how to get connected here or whatever it is, um, there'll be folks here at the info bar on your right-hand side on the way out that would love to just talk with you and um, provide any information uh, that you actually need. Um, we are in this uh, sermon series called Won't He Do It, where we're studying the book of Mark. And so if you're just hopping in uh, this morning to all of this, I'll give you a quick little catch-up here. Um, this is week 12, so it'll be really quick. But um, the book of Mark is, is one of the Gospels, and so our Bibles are, are broken up to the Old and New Testament. And uh, these four Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. There's Matthew, there's Mark, the one that we're studying, uh, Luke and John. And each one of these Gospels actually gives like this really cool look into the teachings and the life of Jesus. And they each give us a little bit different perspective um, based on their personality, based on their own experiences, based on the eyewitness stuff that they saw. And um, that's what we see in this, in this book. And in, in Mark, we end up seeing a lot of talk about the kingdom, uh, a lot of talk about uh, Jesus. Like he does all these... Uh, th- there's like this authoritative element to, to Jesus and what his teachings were like. And then he does these healings. And so all this stuff has happened up to this point. But last week, um, Nicole, um, when she was preaching and talking about the authority of Jesus, there's this pivot point that actually happens within the book of Mark. And uh, in this passage that we're going to look at today, Mark chapter 9, continues this pivot. So if you're reading along just on your own, um, you actually notice it's a little bit of a shift. It's It's the tone changes, uh, how he teaches changes, how people are responding begins to change. It's a big shift um, here at this point of the story. But um, before we get into that, um, Nicole actually posted this this question um, on her Instagram, and she said, hey, if you could go back to your 18-year-old self and just say four words, like, what would you say, right? And so I saw this, and when she posted it, I was like, oh, man. That'd be great. Uh, I think I would say, like, I could do it in three words, like, don't date her. Or, like, <laughs> wait for Lacey would have been better. Wait for Lacey would have been, like, a better one. Um, I thought maybe invest Apple, retire early would have been, like, a good one uh, as well. Um, but, like, all these things are, like, coming in. And it was, like, these questions. I was like, man, what, what would I really ask myself and, and everything? But sometimes we, we hear questions we don't necessarily like. Or um, we're, we're hearing, like, things that we just, like, fully like. And how many guys have, like someone has come to you and said, are you okay? You look tired. It's a terrible, like, don't ever say that to somebody, right? Like, it's like, you're you're essentially saying, you look like crap. Like, what's going on, right? Like, so, like, so there's, like, questions we don't ever want to hear. Or, like, is that really healthy? Just let me eat it. Like, I'm not even asking you, right? Like, so there's questions. But in the midst of these questions, like, it's like, all right, how do I begin to wrestle with some of this stuff? And I was thinking about these questions and, and thinking about even, like, this idea of, like, if I could talk to my, my 18-year-old self, you know, 26 years ago, what would I, what would I say um, in that moment? And, and I was like, ah, here's the question, and this one hurts so bad. Like, it's, it's, it's just three words. And it's a question that I can't, like, it hurts so bad. And it's just simply this. Is this Christ-like? That's it. Can you imagine if you just asked this question? Can you imagine uh, your 18-year-old self if you could just be like, hey, here's something for you. Um, Some of y'all might be 18, so you're like, oh, I'll just ask myself. But can you imagine this being, like, at the forefront of your mind all the time? Um, 
would this have saved you a couple of times? Yeah, if, like, think about how many times if you had just honestly answered this question, if you would have like, saved yourself from a lot of trouble, from a lot of pain, from a lot of situations that you never would have been put in, right? If you just had said to yourself, is this Christ-like in you? And you honestly said, nah, it's not, right? And came to grips with that. And I just started thinking about this question uh, a lot um, this week because, man, if we could do more of this, what a pivot would happen in our communities. What a change and shift that would happen in our conversations and our relationships and everything. Like, is this Christ-like? And, um, and so the passage that we're going to actually be in today, I've never actually done a sermon on this passage before. It's actually one of the uh, stories in Scripture that I've always found fascinating. And so if you're new to the Bible, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, like, this story is going to seem weird. All right, so um, some stories in the Bible just are. So I'll try and like connect some of the dots and help with a little, um, kind of lessen that a little bit. But there's this story in Mark chapter 9, and we're just coming off in Mark chapter 8 of Jesus. Again, his tone has shifted, it's changed. It's, he's talking about that the way of his kingdom is the way of the cross, all right? And so um, the reality of the way of the cross, and we'll go through a bunch of characteristics of the cross here in a few minutes, but... The reality of the way of the cross is there's some suffering involved in it. There's some denial that's a part of it. And, um, and, and we've got to understand that as, as part of our faith. And, and so um, Jesus is talking to, to Peter and his disciple and all the other disciples about, hey, this is the way of the cross. And then this story happens that is just, it's, it seems bizarre when we read it. It's called the transfiguration story. And, um, and so even when we were planning the series, uh, the way everything was getting mapped out, I was like, I just want to do a sermon on this one um, because I've never done it before and I want the challenge of it um, because it's just a little bit of a bizarre story. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. And here it starts in verse 1. He says, And he said to them, them being the disciples, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not t- taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So he actually tells his disciples that, listen, some of you sitting here right now, like you're going to see this, the power of the kingdom. Like, and you're going to see it before you even die. Like it, you're just going to see it. And um, this, this takes on a bigger meaning after his resurrection, of course. But three disciples are about to see this power in like a, an interesting way. And um, so he's setting them up to begin to experience something. So he says, after six days, all right, so this is important. After six days. Jesus took Peter, James, and John. This becomes his inner circle. So he's got his tight 12 disciples, and he's got kind of closer-knit um, folks there too. So you got Peter, James, and John with him, and they led up to a high mountain. All right, so if you've been with us during this series, I'm just pointing to some things that are like, you might have glossed over this before, but I hope now through this series you'll be like, hold on a second, why is there a mountain there? All right, and that that might key us into something, all right? So they go up to a mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Who was transfigured? Jesus, okay? And so transfigured just means transformed, all right? There's something that shifted in Jesus in this moment. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them, look at this, Elijah and Moses, all right, who were talking with Jesus. They're dead, Okay, so, like, this is why I'm telling you, like, this is like an odd story. So Moses and Elijah are both dead. Peter said to Jesus, 
Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because what? They were so frightened. Now, we might look at this and be like, Peter, like this big thing is happening in front of you. I'm like, I'm sorry, if you were with someone and all of a sudden two dead people were before you and they were talking to the live person, you'd feel odd about that too, right? Like, so they are frightened at this moment. So Peter's just trying to figure out what in the world to do. So let's, let's build these shelters and I'll talk about the shelters in a second. Then a cloud, all right? So that's another little thing in here in this story. A cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Everyone say, listen. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except who? Jesus. As they were coming down the, here it is, mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, just imagine what they're processing right now, right? This is great. I mean, he's like, hey, until I rise from the dead, don't say anything about this. So they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked them, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? There was, there was this, throughout Judaism, they're like, hey, when the Messiah comes, Elijah's coming again first. Okay, so there's this, they believe this. Uh, Jewish folks still talk about this now. If you've ever participated in a Passover, an actual Jewish Passover Seder, um, there's a point in the Passover meal that they literally stop the meal. They go to the corner and they open the door just in case Elijah wants to come in at that moment. Like that's kind of like the, the, the thing that they do. And the kids go and look and see if Elijah's coming. Um, and so they say, Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer? Again, he's changing the language here. Suffer so much and be rejected, right? So he's trying to change the language of those that follow him because he's like, listen, you think it's about power. You think it's about being a king. You think it's about mighty strength and everything. And he's like, no, 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 the Messiah comes and suffer and must be rejected. But I tell you, Elijah has come and they've done to him everything they wish, just as is written about him. So they're sitting there like, what do you mean Elijah has come? And here's who he's talking about, John the Baptist, okay? So he's saying, hey, John the Baptist is the Elijah-like figure that's already come and they already took his head off. So this is already, some of this has already happened and Jesus is kind of tying some of this stuff in here, all right? So let me go here. So I, again, is this a weird story? Can we agree? Yes. All right. So this is an, especially if you're just new to the Bible, you're like, what in the world did I walk into? Can we do like Proverbs where it's like fun little, hey, you're a fool if you do this, if you're wise, you do that. No, this is like an interesting story, but I want to connect some of the dots because this is telling there's something bigger that's going on here. So uh, with Moses, here's what Moses represented. He represented the law, all right? And then Elijah, the prophets. All right, so the law was the word and um, the system that, that God's people lived by. All right, so, so God gave people, um, the Israelites, the law, and then these prophets were the ones that spoke the law. So everything hinged on the law and the prophets, all right, within the Jewish faith. And these prophets would, the law was always telling you how you should act and, and what God's people would be like and counterculturally um, how they would live. And the prophets came and would not only talk about that law and bring people back to the law, but they would also talk about this Messiah that was going to come. And so for a Jewish person, even to this day, the law and the prophets are it. Like it is a huge, huge deal. 
And so Moses and Elijah are the pinnacle of both of those things, right? So they have the law and the prophets. Here's what's interesting about Moses and Elijah. Do you remember how many days it said in the first part? Six, all right? So there's this cool story when, um, uh, when Moses has this interaction uh, with God, and um, it, it talks about that after six days. It's the same language that happened with Moses, all right? So there's a six days with Moses, after six days, um, where he encounters the presence of God. And uh, in this story, he actually gets, to the, he gets a glimpse of God, like God passes by him, and he just sees like the little like back of God, and that it says that Moses was transformed. He started glowing. This is a story back in Exodus. Like he started glowing, and this powerful thing happened. It faded in Moses, but but it just after six days, he finally got this glimpse, and, and God came by him, and like originally, and started speaking to him from a cloud. All right, so there's six days. There's this other story of Elijah who's on the mountain, all right? Both of these things happen on a mountain, all right? Elijah's on the mountain, and um, he has to go out. God speaks to him through the clouds, and he has to go out um, on on the seventh time he hears from God, okay? So seven is after what number? Good job, you guys. It's just six, right? Nothing tricky about that. It's just six. And so we have six days, all right? And then we have a mountain on both of them, all right? mountain on on both of these guys. Um, The cloud is another one. All right, so we have all of these things that match up in these stories of Elijah and in Moses. And so to the listener at that time, not to us, whenever we hear a story like this, we're like, what? This is weird. This is what going on. To a listener back then, they would be like, whoa, what are you saying here, Mark? What's going on? Because we know the stories of Moses. We know the stories of Elijah. What, what are you saying about Jesus? Like, what, what are you saying? Um, how many people were left between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus? How many were left? Just say this. One, One right? Who, who was it? Jesus. So in the end, it's interesting, is Jesus is the only one that's left. And this becomes incredibly significant. Because what ends up happening in uh, verse 5, it says that this voice from the cloud came, right? This voice of God came. And, and what did it say to do? Do you remember? Listen to him. Everyone say listen. Yeah. Listen to him. And it's setting up something really interesting. Because that voice is saying, all that's left is Jesus. You listen to him. So Jesus becomes something much more significant than the other two. And so all of a sudden, this story becomes huge. This story becomes pivotal in the shaping of how people began to think about Jesus. It re, it, to a listener at that point in time, it, it really flipped their entire belief system upside down. It's how big it was. They were like, whoa, 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 you're, you're elevating Jesus to something really significant. So how do we know if something is Christ-like? So when we propose that question, this story becomes pivotal in it because of what was established for Jesus. And here's the first thing that we begin to see, that Jesus is primary. That's the first thing that we begin to see. When um, Moses and Elijah come up to there, uh, come up and um, you know, it's fascinating because what Peter does, um, it says that, do you remember, it says he built what, three what? 
shelters, okay? He built three shelters. And these shelters, they would have been, um, it's another term for like a tabernacle or a tent. So what, in, in Peter's mind in that moment, um, he's operating out of fear. He, he doesn't know what's going on. And so whenever we're fearful, all right, whenever we're fearful, here's what we inevitably will do. We will operate out of self-preservation. Whenever we get scared, whenever we get fearful, whenever we, like this is why like believing in the fearful narratives that are out there right now is, is, is foolish. It's foolish. So we're about to be inundated with political ads, you know, because the governor's race, right? Just when you see all the fear-based stuff, just think, ah, oh, this is foolish. This is foolishness. Because what ends up happening is when we, when we believe the fearful narratives, we will totally then be like in a self-preservation mindset. And what happens is when we are in a self-preservation mindset, we don't care about the other people. Why? Because you're trying to preserve yourself. And so, so what Peter does in this moment, and so we can't blame Peter. He's, he's scared. He's fearful. It's like this bizarre thing is happening before him. So he's like, whoa, let me build these shelters. And, and in these shelters, here's, here's what those shelters would do back then. They would make these shelters um, to, to like house something, to control something, to, to make sure that it's like, all right, let me, let me put the, um, in the temple, they would have this shelter, this tabernacle to house the presence of God, Right? Well, that presence of God, if it was let loose, like people couldn't handle it. And so it's like, let me put the presence of God. And they tried to like house the presence of God. That's what all Peter's trying to do. So in some way, what Peter's doing is actually okay. Like he's, he's reacting in the way that any one of us would. And so he's like, let me, let me like create this shelter. And like, but he's doing it also to protect himself because he's so scared. But what, it, what we're missing here is he has not put Jesus primary yet. Why? Because he wants to build a shelter for each one of them. And so what ends up happening in this moment, and this is just fascinating, this establishment that happens is like Moses and Elijah go away and just Jesus is there. And it's establishing that Jesus is primary. Jesus is it. Jesus is that dude. Jesus is the main man. Jesus is the cat's pajamas, whatever you want to say. Like, Jesus is it. He's primary over everything else. Nothing compares to Jesus. All the things that Moses talked about with the law, all the ways that it pointed to, like, something about God. Do you know what the law points to in the Old Testament? Who does it point to? Y'all. Like, I'm literally setting you up today for the easy ones. I'm not even trying, right? right? The answer is Jesus, right? The law is pointing to who? Yes. So the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. So what we're saying here is like Jesus is primary. So guess what? If something doesn't match up to the way Jesus taught, like when you're reading your Bible, you open up the Old Testament and you're like, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem right. Then what ends up happening, like, yeah, but what did Jesus teach, and maybe I'm missing something here, and I'm missing a connection point, because this all points to Jesus, because Jesus is primary, and so he's saying that like, Jesus is above the law, but the law is important, it just points to Jesus, Jesus fulfills all of it, and then with the prophets, like, hey, remember what the prophets have always been talking about, this Messiah would come, this Messiah, this Savior, this King would come, the prophets kept telling you about this. The prophets then, what they're saying when, when Jesus is left, it's like the prophets were pointing to who? Jesus. You're doing better. The prophets are pointing to Jesus. And so this is like 
this is a huge moment. It's, it's, it's huge. It's like, oh, everything points to Jesus. That Jesus is primary. So then even for us, what we begin to say is like, oh, hold on a second. What is it Christ-like? Well, is Jesus primary here? So when we go through these scenarios and we're like, man, I don't even know how to tell if it's Christ-like. You can ask yourself this. Well, is Jesus what I'm fixated on here? If it's not, then guess what? It, it's, it's not Christ-like. You might like it, so you might say me like it, but it's not Christ-like it, right? Like, that's not what it is. So here's what ends up happening, and I think it's important. If Jesus is primate in our lives, then he's also the point of it. If he's primary, then he's also the point. So when we live our lives and, and when we're at work, if Jesus is primary for you at work, then he's the point of it. And so when you're at work, you, you work hard, and if you make good money, you make good money, if you, whatever it is, but, but Jesus is the point. Work is not the point of your life. Your friendships, Jesus is primary. If Jesus isn't primary in your friendships, then what? Guess what? Your friendships aren't what? Christ-like. In your marriages, if, if Jesus isn't primary in your marriage, your marriage is not what? This feels simple, doesn't it? But it hurts. It hurts because it, it's like it's tough, it's hard. It's, it, it's, we have to wrestle with certain things. Here's another way to think about it. If the point isn't to draw closer to Jesus, then it isn't Christ-like. So if we're in a scenario and you're like, oh man, I'm on the fence about this one. This is, we love gray areas and loopholes, right? But in your searching for a loophole or you feel like it's a gray area, you can ask yourself, am I being drawn closer to Jesus in this? And if you're like, I'm actually not, then guess what? It's not Christ-like. Now I'm not saying everything you do, you have to like pause for a second and be like, whoa, whoa, am I, am I drawn closer to Jesus, right? But if it gets wired inside of us, then we start viewing things in this right way. So you can have fun with your friends. And, and listen, just because you didn't pray beforehand doesn't mean it wasn't Christ-like, all right? Like you have fun with your friends, you go do some fun event, whatever it is, and, and you go out and you do it, and you're like, man, the way we connected to one another in community together, became unified, and we laughed together, and there was just so much love in this connection that we had. Is that Christ-like? Yes. Am I drawn closer to Jesus in the midst of Yes. Did we help each other be, like, make better decisions? Yes. It's great. It's Christ-like. So we begin to see, like, ah, oh, if this becomes a measure for us, man, maybe it's not so hard. Maybe it's not as hard as we thought. Here's a second way that I think is important. This is the last thing. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. There's this famous verse in John chapter 14, which is one of the other writers in the New Testament. And um, Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are three separate things that indicate three different like, activities with Jesus, okay? He says, I, I am the, the way. So if something is Christ-like, then it's the way of Jesus. Right? How do we know the way of Jesus? We've got to know what Jesus taught. And we've got to begin to study what <clears throat> Jesus taught. 
You know, I've been um, watching a, a lot of what's happening outside of Christianity and how people perceive Christians and everything. And I think that so often um, people outside of Christianity look at Christianity and think to themselves, man, y'all, y'all don't even know what Jesus actually taught because you're sure as heck not act, acting Christ-like. I mean, th- think about how often we get involved in some of these cultural things that push people away from the church, push people away from Jesus. And how often if we had just paused for a second and said, is this Christ-like? How often would we have maybe brought some people in rather than pushed them away? How often would we have paused for a second and be like, ah, actually, you know what? (laughs) I don't remember Jesus ever teaching anything like the way I'm thinking or talking or acting, right? Man, what a shift would actually happen in terms of people's connection to Jesus. But Jesus is the way. Um, Jesus in this passage is, is in Mark chapter 8. He'd just gotten done telling Peter that he's going to have to suffer and he's going to have to die. And, um, and that eventually he'll rise again. And he's actually indicating to all of his disciples, guess what, you all are going to suffer too. It's not that you're going to be looking for it. It's just the reality of what ends up happening. And, um, and so they're taking all of this stuff in and they're processing all of this. And, and what they begin to see is that the way of the cross, the way of Jesus is, is very different. It, it pushes us in a different way. And, and, and what the cross should mean is, is incredibly different. But here's what's interesting. In this moment with, with Peter and James and John, um, they experience something that's really cool. Um, they experience authentic worship. Authentic worship. Now, in church world, and Christian vernacular, um, whenever we talk about worship, we typically associate it with, si- with singing, right? That's kind of the language we use. That, that's part of it. It's not all of it. It's, it's part of it. Um, but there's this idea of worship, and what we worship means is what we view primary, what gives us our purpose, what establishes our identity. And in this story, it says, like, hey, you need to listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Why? Because... He's primary. He's your identity. He is, we follow his way. And so in this moment, it's like, man, they're experiencing like authentic worship in this moment. The the presence of God is in their midst with Jesus. And something begins to shift in these guys. And so if worship is our purpose, it's our way, it's our identity. Here's why I think we've got to think about this just a little bit different. Worship isn't about believing. It is sensing, experiencing, and being enamored with Jesus. This is what worship is. Like, a lot of people can say they're a Christian, but but when you really worship Jesus, your language starts changing. And here's what I mean by that. The idea of obedience isn't repulsive to us. It's it's like, whoa, whoa, I'm connected to Jesus. What a joy it is to be obedient to his word. Instead of like, obedience, no, no, don't tell me what to do. I want, I want Jesus on my own terms, right? There, there, there's a difference. It just starts to shift in how we begin to think when we really worship. Why? Because we're experiencing, we're sensing, we're, we're enamored with the things of Jesus. That's why it changes so much. That's why this story is such a big deal when Jesus is placed above all, all things and all people. and all, It's like, it's about Jesus and his way. Well, and that verse 5, when it says to listen to him, it, it 
changes everything. So for us, this is why I, I always say here that like, hey, if your opinions don't match up with what Jesus taught, then guess what? You're wrong. And we got to embrace that and know it and feel it and let it get into us. Because that's when we get to understand and participate in the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. This is something that... Um, when we begin to process the way of the cross, because again, Jesus is, and Mark has just written about this right before this, like it's about the way of the cross. You're going to see, again, the shift that starts happening in Mark, the cross becomes way more prevalent now. And so the way of the cross is pivotal to our understanding of what it means to follow the way of Jesus. And so when you begin to think about the cross, like what comes to mind? And so it becomes like an understanding of like, hey, hold on a second. I, do I really understand maybe some characteristics of the cross? So I wrote down a few that I think could be helpful. When we begin to see this message of Jesus in the cross, and so if you're not familiar with like the Christian story, like part of the life of Jesus, or the point of the life of Jesus is that eventually what ends up happening is he dies on the cross. And, and we're going to take communion together here in just a minute. But he dies on the cross, and, and, and in that it's, you know, it saves us from sin. There's a whole, there's a ton of things that go along with this. But these are just some of the characteristics that go along with the cross. I mean, look what's there. Grace, love, vulnerability, humility, restoration, hope, simplicity, forgiveness, mercy, sacrifice, generosity, justice, righteousness, goodness. All of these things are characteristics of the cross. And there's more. There's more than this. But, but this becomes then the model if, if following Jesus, if the way of the cross is Jesus, the way of Jesus is the cross, then guess what? Then communities of Christian, this is what they model. This is what they model. So when people talk about a Christian, this, these are the words that they say. When people talk about a church of people who call themselves Christians, guess what they say about the church? That. If it's not that, then it's not the way of the cross. Right? Again, I, this, for a complex story, I feel like there's some simple elements to this. To understand, this. is it the way of the cross? Or is it not? Is this Christ-like or is it not? One of the other things I, I wrote down this week was this. If we lose the way of the cross, we lose the way of Jesus. And here's the reality. At that point, we aren't following Jesus. We're just saying we're a Christian. And so this idea of the way of the cross, the, the connection to the ways of Jesus and what it's supposed to mean and how it's supposed to be modeled and what it actually looks like, this becomes pivotal. This, this question of, is it Christ-like, becomes pivotal to our understanding of following Jesus. You know, we can live in fear or we can live in the victory of the cross, right? We can live in fear and, and be like, oh, I'm just going to self-preserve all of this, or we can live in the victory of the cross. It changes everything. Here's the last little line here. Calling ourselves a Christian means nothing. Following Jesus means everything. Um, it would be like actually way better if people stopped calling themselves Christians. Um, because if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, it's easy to call yourself a Christian, right? We just give ourselves that label. It's not hard. 
we just call ourselves great, but, but to say, no, I actually follow Jesus, then all of a sudden you're setting up something that's like, oh, so you fo- like follow Jesus. Like follow him, follow him. It changes everything. So band, you guys can come back up. Um, so I want us to start thinking about here again this idea of like, is it Christ-like? Is my life Christ-like? I want us to start thinking about this idea of, is my life modeling after the cross? I want us to start thinking about, man, is Jesus actually primary in my life? So often people struggle with their faith because Jesus actually wasn't primary. Other things were. And so I want us to start processing this on a little bit deeper level. And so you've got these um, communion cups, if, for those of you that are going to choose it, take communion with us today. Um, if you don't want to take communion, you don't have to. Um, there's no pressure to do that. But I want to explain communion to us, and then we're just going to spend like a minute or so in silence here in just, in just a second. But I want us to explain, I want to explain communion because Every time we take communion, I don't ever want it to be a habit for anybody, ever. If communion ever becomes a habit, you've missed the point. And so we're going to spend some time here. It's just going to be Laurel just play underscore and, and um, nothing else going on. just want to sit with these elements that we have. We have the, the bread and the juice. And, and so if you guys actually want to take those things out and get them ready, um, but I really just want us to sit for a minute and process what God might be speaking to your heart. Something he desires for you and maybe something you've been wrestling with or maybe you just realize, man, I'm so disconnected from all this stuff. Like, I, I need to get back. Maybe start taking some things for granted, whatever it is. Um, I just want you to sit for a minute with this. I'll be quiet, and then I'll come back in and, and lead us through communion. Thank you so much for watching with us this morning. If you are out there and have questions, prayer needs, or want to get better connected, just check in on our website. Seriously, it's really that simple. Just go to the website. That's right. Influencers Weekend is back. If you haven't bought your tickets yet, there's still time. Go to InfluencersRVA.com to learn more. See you next week.